But it's good to be with you. I'm Kurt Parker. And at this point, we'd like to release those who are in children's church up through sixth grade. Uh, you can be dismissed at this time downstairs where it's much cooler. So the rest of you have to stay here. And uh, for the rest of you, uh, I just want to take a minute before we, we get into our time this morning and just mention that um, we have a couple here at the church that's a big blessing to Laura and me, and we are so grateful for their presence here, for their prayers, for their support and encouragement. And that is Jim and Dorothy Frierickson, and you may or may not be aware that they just celebrated their 50th wedding anniversary. 50th wedding anniversary, all right? All you guys have been married five or six years. Yeah, you're talking... They've put the time in, and they're such a blessing to us. So uh, give them a hand, will you? 50 years. We are so grateful for them, and they've been a blessing to us. And they, their kids just threw them just a marvelous party uh, yesterday, and we had the privilege of going and got to hear them sing a duet together, which was just awesome, and hear Jim's uh, comments on how it all went down, all right? And I'm glad he was diligent and, uh, and all of that. So. Anyway, it's just been really fun. Also, we're, we're grateful to have Mike and Laura Jones back. Mike and Laura, are you in here somewhere? Yes, you are. Mike and Laura Jones are back from a year away from us in Romania, uh, pursuing academic uh, pursuits. Mike teaching there and Laura pursuing her doctorate. And, uh, of course, and doing the ministry, as they always do, and being involved in churches and, and doing that in a second language. And so we're grateful to have them back, though it's been fun to, to see them. Well, today we are back in our verse-by-verse study, and it is... Uh, entitled God's Plan for a Healthy Church, a study through the books of First and Second Corinthians, in particular today on singleness and marriage, uh, to marry or to not. And we've taken the last couple of weeks to really introduce this next section as we move into First Corinthians chapter 7 uh, because of its importance and because there's some assumed knowledge as Paul comes into this next section of the book. He begins to do a Q&A and you can kind of, it's kind of like listening to one side of a phone call that your spouse is making. You hear the answers they're giving, you don't know what the questions are, and you're like, no, 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 I mean, and all of that. But it, basically, that's what it is. And so what we're having is one side of the conversation and Paul answering some questions that he has read from a letter that was given to him. And so Paul's going to give them some answers, and he's going to assume some knowledge. And so what I thought we should do is take some time to make sure we have the same foundation. We live in a culture where it really isn't... Uh, it's not safe to assume that we all have the same understanding that Paul is assuming this Corinthian church has, as he was there with them for 18 months and taught them ex- uh, extensively on all things of the scripture, you can sh- be sure. Uh, this, is, this is an issue that then I thought that we should take some time and, and, and address. And so we've been in Matthew chapter 19, and so you can turn there if you would, Matthew 19. And I invite you to worship the Lord with us by reading his words together, and that's what we're doing all morning. This morning we've worshiped the Lord in song and praise, we've extolled his greatness, we've uh, magnified uh, his glory and the things that he does uh, on the cross, certainly through Christ and all the other things we talked about today. We've, we've uh, worshiped the Lord in, in uh, prayer and petition as we've uh, let Alex lead us corporately and lifted up those things that are so important Uh, that he has specifically said we're to pray for, and then the specific needs that we have. And so we submit ourselves in worship and uh, by making it clear that we understand he is the giver of all things. We've worshiped in in giving uh, of our material things and our first fruits, because when we do that, we uh, worship him that way. We know that he's the giver of all things, and so we worship him that way, and we are but stewards of our material wealth and our lives. And so now we'll worship him by reading his words, and we recognize in that worship that they're authoritative, they're relevant, in every circumstance, and so we can look at them and be uh, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, as I come into these 
uh, passages we're going to look at, I just want to address a question that was given to me just recently, uh, and, and I appreciate this, so keep the questions coming, but here's the question, what is marriage? And really it was couched in a different way, and I'll, I think you'll pick it up as I go through. Some might say uh, that marriage is the intimate relationship between two people, that that's marriage. Um, and if you have that type of relationship with someone, they're going to say you're really married. And the idea, of course, would be that in the eyes of God, that perhaps would be the essence of Genesis 2.24, for a man to leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and to be one flesh. And, and so the thought goes, then, in this idea, if two people have that type of relationship, uh, that makes them married in the eyes of God. And maybe you even heard that teaching. But I would submit to you, scripturally speaking, uh, that that type of relationship does not make a marriage. Because if it did, then the word fornication then would lose its meaning. So, scripturally speaking, when two people enter into an intimate physical relationship and they're not married, that's not called marriage. That's called sin. And we're told to flee from that. We're told to remove ourselves from it and to uh, avoid that. And the, and the confirmation really is found in one of Paul's answers to a question, and we're going to get to this in just a couple of weeks, to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 7, 2, where Paul says, as he's answered a question, uh, but because of fornication, Paul says, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. And I think the idea expressed there is, is obvious. The immorality described there can be avoided by being married. And so it isn't marriage that is made when two people are intimate. Uh, that's sin. The act of physical intimacy doesn't make you married. It's not living together that makes a marriage either for the very same reasons. Uh, couples enter into a cohabitation, uh, try to work out the relationship, and they avoid the promising and the pledging and the covenanting and all that other stuff that goes along with the marriage that really is the marriage, as we saw last time from Malachi 2.13 and following that we looked at extensively. The thing that makes a marriage is the covenant, and we looked at that last week. So when someone uh, has an intimate relationship with someone else, and neither of them are married, uh, that doesn't make a marriage. It's sinfulness. It's fornication. We're told to flee from it, 1 Corinthians 6.18. We looked at that about a month ago, and to abstain from it, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. So keep those questions coming. That's a very important question. That's a question that gets asked a lot. What is a marriage? What makes a marriage? Is it the intimate relationship? Does that make you married in the eyes of God? And I think that Scripture is pretty clear that that does not make a marriage. So uh, if you've been with us, you know then that we're in our fourth stop here in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. And as we think about God's plan for a healthy church, which is really how we've labeled this whole study, God's plan for a healthy church, because as you work your way through First and Second Corinthians, you just work your way through a series of issues that affected the church and still affects the church today. And so uh, Paul then addresses those things. And as we look at it, we just know that God desires a healthy church. He wants a church to flourish. And so the issues that pop up then on a day-to-day -day basis or from time to time in a church, uh, then Paul teaches on them. They, they could be preventative for a church. They could be curative for a church. Perhaps you're in it and need cure. Perhaps we're not in it, but we want to avoid it. And so Paul gives this instruction. So it's relevant for us then as we look through the passages. And then we, as we get to chapter 6, verse 12, uh, through the end of chapter 7, as we think about a healthy church, Paul is dealing with the use of the body. And he's dealing with singleness and dealing with uh, marriage. And so he has to deal with errors in the church uh, regarding immorality and marriage and divorce. And so over the last two weeks, we've taken some time to lay a foundation of God's instruction for human relationships. And I gave you the reasons why we were doing that so that we can be fully versed in the assumed knowledge Paul is going to uh, address as he takes on these questions from the Corinthian church. Now, because we're in Matthew 19, I look, I'd like you to look at verse 1, and we'll read through. Now, we covered this last week, and so I'll just review quickly, as is our habit. 
and we'll be able to, to uh, all get our feet under us. If you've not been with us, you'll know where we are and, uh, and be of one mind with us. So the Lord's word is profitable for any time you read it, but uh, it's nice to be on one page. So look at chapter 19, verse 1. Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Verse 2, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. Verse 3, the Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Let's pause right there, and we'll look at our first question and look at Jesus' answers. And now as we saw, as they asked this question, they already knew Jesus' opinion on it because he'd already given them his opinion on, in Matthew 5, verse 27 and following. He'd already told them what was heard of old and what actually was the case. So it wasn't, a, it wasn't a question of, I wonder what Jesus thinks about this. They already knew. So they're trying to trip him up. And we talked about why in Paran, where John the Baptist was arrested for talking to Herod Antipas about his relationship, which wasn't a marriage, but he had stolen his brother's wife. And John got thrown in prison and got his head cut off. And Jesus is in the same region. Pharisees are asking him a very similar question, perhaps to offend uh, Antipas and, and uh, see Jesus come to his end or be discredited. So we looked at all that. So they're asking a question. It's deliberate. They're following along with him. They want to ask him a question that's going to make him lose, uh, lose his uh, integrity in front of the people or lose his position, perhaps be arrested. And so he answers them in a very simple manner. And, and one all believers can use as an example to answer our culture. And as we've uh, looked at what the Supreme Court has done and all the things that have happened, which just kind of solidifies what's already been going on in the country, I think these are very refreshing words. And here's the thing. As Jesus answers this question, it's very simple. He just says, what did God intend from the beginning? What was his plan? He doesn't, he doesn't debate the issues. He doesn't say, well, what does, what does this rabbi say and what does that rabbi say? He doesn't debate the cultural issues of the day. He just says, listen, what did God intend from the beginning? What was his plan? And so his answer has three parts. Look there, if you would, in verse 4. He answered them and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? Verse 5, and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, verse 6, they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So, just three easy points, and I think it's super important, very relevant for us. Number one, one man created for one woman. And so he's addressing the Pharisees. He says, listen, haven't you read about this in creation? Remember what God said? It's still relevant today. God created Adam. God created Eve. He didn't make provision for any other circumstance. He wants his followers to see a very simple point, and that is there aren't any other options. This is the one option God gave, one man, one woman. Adam and Eve had one choice, and that was it. And then he saw the, the, we saw the second of the basics of human relationships here that Jesus really draws them back to, and that's uh, there's a powerful link. What God, God uh, told Adam to leave his father and mother and, and be joined to his wife. And of course, that applies to the wife as well, because it's written from a male gender perspective. And as, as I've told you before, as we work through these issues, understand that what applies to the male applies to the female as well. Leaving and cleaving together, God created this powerful link. And God put them together. He brought them out. He, he uh, made them one flesh. And he looks at that union. And it's obvious to him from the beginning and to us, us as we, the Lord blesses us with children, that it is one flesh. And that physical uh, appearance of a child really is the blending which God sees right from the beginning. And then the third of the basics that we saw of human relationships uh, last time at the end of verse 6 was this. Verse 6, look there. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. 
Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So the third reason is that God is the craftsman of marriage. And I love this, kind of a summing up of what he said, just saying, listen, this is my idea. Um, I'm the one who made this word up. I'm the one who gave it its definition. I put the parameters around it. And this was the only option. And so don't change it. Don't depart from it. That's the idea. Don't leave it. Don't put it away. The passage is God. And here's the thing, giving his truth about all marriage. He's not just specifically talking only to Adam and Eve, or later as the cultural, at cultural advance and the more people were on the earth, or even all the way up to Jesus' time. He's just saying, look, this is God's opinion about all marriage. It has to do with the couple specifically and the idea of marriage in general. God's saying, I create marriage, I put marriages together, I make marriages, and you shouldn't be trying to take them apart. And he isn't specific, and this is the key, and we looked at this a couple weeks ago, kind of in a, in a foreshadowing of, of uh, what we should be thinking about this Supreme Court decision from God's perspective, and that God's laws apply to everyone. Moral laws, absolutes, are just like physical laws in the universe, which are absolutes. There are consequences for disobeying them, and they apply to everyone. And, and so as God sets up this whole idea, he says, look, I make marriage, I'm the craftsman of, craftsman of marriage. So he isn't specifically talking about Christian marriage or non-Christian marriage, he's just saying, Marriage is my word, my idea, I define it, this is what it is. And so he just takes him, he just hops over everything and goes all the way back, what was God's intent? Because that's what we need to understand. Now we took some time last week to confirm that teaching in the word of God from a lot of different places, and we won't go back there again. But these are the principles and basics that Paul will assume the Corinthian church knows as he deals with their questions. The basics of human relationships are found at creation. That's what Jesus wants them to know. What did God say? What did God intend? What was his command? Those things are still true today for human happiness and holiness and fulfillment. This is what God determined. Where God says no, it's no for everyone, not just Christ followers. And there are consequences for not following his pattern. They're always painful. They're always full of sorrow, chastisement, ultimately then death. And where God says yes, it's yes for everyone, for their good. Marriage is his plan, his definition, and done his way. It blesses the individual, it blesses the family, it blesses the culture. Now look at verse 7, we'll pick up right where we left off last time. And this passage, again, is speaking to human relationships, and Jesus has answered their first question in this uh, contention about marriage by simply saying, what did God say about this? And that was their answer. What did God say, and what did he set up? Because that's still true today. And even though the culture got more complex, and it's even more complex today, it's still exactly the same. And if Jesus were here, no doubt, as someone come up to him and said, what do you think about this? Uh, what do you think about homosexual marriage? What do you think about calling it that? I, I'm sure he wouldn't get into a debate culturally. He'd just say, look, what did God say at the beginning? And what did he create? He'd create six people and say, work it out. He'd create two guys and one girl, two girls and one guy, and say, hey, whatever you want to do, it's okay with me. And he could have done whatever he wanted to do. And that's the thing. When God's creating... And he's in charge of everything. He could have set it up however he wanted to. And he could have given whatever ten commandments he wanted to give to govern the, to the lives of men. But these are the ones he gave, and this is the parameters about which he set the marriage relationship. And so that, I think that's significant for us. It's simple. It keeps us from having to get into this big, well, it means a lot to me, and get all the feelings that get into it, and just say, look, God set this up for human good, and his commands are not burdensome. They were set up for the good of people. And so I think that's very, very refreshing for me. I, as I read through this, even in the light of being depressed about what our nation is doing, it was uh, refreshing for me. Now, here's the thing. This all has to do with what God set up. Now, look at verse 7, and we'll begin our, our, uh, our work through the next several verses. 
And as I said last time, kind of foreshadowing this whole thing, um, have you ever spoken to someone and then at the end of your conversation, after you explained everything, they asked a question which indicated that they didn't hear a single thing you said? Now, that's exactly what we have going on here, okay? Jesus gets done saying, what did God say? What did he set up? This is how it's supposed to be. And here's the first reaction for the Pharisees. Second question, first, first reaction after he gets to explain that. Instead of saying, oh, well, I didn't understand that. Well, that's, really, that's really encouraging, and that clarifies a lot of things for me. Here's what they said. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and put her away? And with that question, you realize they couldn't care less what God had to say when it came right down to it. And I guess it's no surprise, because if they cared what God had to say, they wouldn't have been following Jesus around and giving him a hard time. And so with the question, they really tried to set up Jesus as an antagonistic towards Moses. I mean, here's what Moses said, and here's what you're saying. I mean, you're just, and the people loved Moses. And so they're just kind of setting him up as if he's antagonistic towards the law of Moses. And getting Jesus to come out against Moses would be a great way to discredit Jesus in the eyes of the people. So God had intended for lifelong marriage. God made no provision for divorce. God made one man and one woman. And so uh, the Pharisees are not interested in the rule. That's I think, becomes apparent. They were only interested in the exception. Even if what they're going to say here, even if what they said was true, which we're going to see it's not, what we have here is that they were only interested in the exception. They have a certain passage in mind, and I want to go to the passage and, and see if they had represented Moses correctly. So turn in your Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 24. And so find it quickly, just turn to the front of your Bible, uh, hit Genesis, five books to the right, you're there. Deuteronomy 24, and as you're turning, remember, uh, the Pharisees always wanted to know the exception to God's law, the loopholes to God's law. And so if you remember Matthew 5, the commands concerning oaths and what they were supposed to swear by and all that, they, they would swear by anything uh, but God to avoid uh, breaking God's law, but they'd swear by the temple, they'd swear by uh, the heaven and the earth and Jerusalem and all that kind of stuff, and the gold that's in the temple. They'd swear by all the stuff, that, uh, and Jesus really calls them on the carpet about it. You swear about all this stuff. Which, which, which sanctifies the gold in the temple, the gold or the God who's in the temple? Those kind of things. So they were always about trying, finding these loopholes, the commands on retaliation, you know, the limit of retaliation, and they would go to the full length that they could get whatever back they needed to get. Commands concerning love, you know, they would comment, you know, love your neighbor, but not your enemy. Jesus says, you know, no, it's not that. Love everyone. You know, and on and on, you know, giving, prayer, fasting, you know, wealth, all that stuff. All the other areas, they had twisted Moses' teaching uh, around and kind of to fit their own needs and cover their own sinfulness. And so this is the passage they leaned on when they said, you know, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? And it's Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. So you read in your copy of God's Word, no slides there. I want you to see this because this, this is very important here. Okay, number one, when, verse one, when a man takes a wife, see where we are, and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he had found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it on her in her hand and sends her out from his house, verse two, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. Now, I'm going to interrupt the story here just to give some context, okay? Um, this is dealing with a specific situation, and it can't be talking about adultery here, why is that? Because we looked at this last week. Because if she committed adultery, what was the punishment? Death. Okay, so she's not around anymore if this is what we're talking about. So we're not talking about that, okay? And I'm going to clarify that as we get into the next part of the passage. You'll see that's clear. 
But notice, there's no extra commentary on the situation surrounding the divorce. No comment on whether it was the right thing to do, no comment at all. We're going to see that it was not, of course, uh, because it becomes apparent as we read through the rest of the verse. But there's no extra commentary. But this is the verse that the Jews would go to, the Pharisees would go to, and say, hey, Moses gave us the right uh, to give a certificate of divorce. Now, look at verse 3. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies, who took her to be his wife. So just pause right there before verse 4. Here's the situation. She was married to someone else. He issued her a certificate of divorce. She went out of her house. She got married to someone else. That guy didn't like her, or he kicked a bucket, and you know she's loose again to, to be free. Verse 4. Um, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife. So either way, she can't go back. That's the only instruction. Whether her second husband dies or whether he gives her a certificate of divorce, she can't go back to her first husband. Since she has been, here's the word, defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin in on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Now, I think that's a, that's a significant statement. And here's the thing. There's no command given here, see? that relates to divorce. There's only a command given that relates to remarriage. But this is the passage the Pharisees are using to condone their behavior. But in context, it only deals with a remarriage to the original husband. It doesn't say if he or she did right or wrong to begin with. It just deals with the aftermath. They can't get back together. It just controls remarriage. Now remember, earlier we talked about the reasons why the Pharisees would divorce their wives, for any and every reason. That was the most common uh, thought held by the rabbi who proposed that, which was if you burned your dinner, you know, somebody looked prettier, you, know, you argued with you openly, you walked out in the street uncovered, whatever it was, they could divorce their wife for any and every reason. That's what they did. And so they used this passage to justify themselves because he's found some indecency in her. That's what they would say. This was indecent. Whatever it was, uh, you didn't like. And so you gave her a certificate of divorce. And now, to give you an idea of what that word means, because I think everything really kind of spins right on that word, he found some indecency in her, back up, if you would, one chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 12, and we'll see the word used again in a context, and we'll get an idea of what we're talking about. So Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 12, if you would. And as they're giving general law, Lord's giving general laws to the people as they are uh, moving through and living in tents, he says this, Also you shall have a place outside the camp where you may go out, verse 13, and you shall have an implement among your equipment when you sit down outside, you shall dig with it and turn and cover your refuse. Now it's not that, not fun to talk about, all right? So I think we all know what we're talking about. I kind of like going camping, all right, in the rough. Verse 14, for the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and give your enemies over to you. Therefore, your camp shall be holy, that he may see no, here's the word, indecency among you and turn away from you. Now, that's the same word, okay? And it just means the uncleanness of a thing. That's the idea in the Hebrew, just the uncleanness of a thing. It's the same term used in Deuteronomy 24.1. Something shameful, something vile, something disgusting. That's the idea. Here's the important thing to understand from the passage. Remember, it's not talking about adultery. I just want to come back to that. Because what would have been this, said was the requirement for that, and that was death. Okay, So it wasn't adultery. So God's already made that clear, Deuteronomy 22, 21. So this uncleanness, this indecency, has to be something other than adultery. Because Deuteronomy 22, 21 says that if, if they, they commit adultery, they're both to be killed. 
So we already see two chapters ahead uh, before this that God has said this is the punishment for adultery. So it's not adultery, it's something else. And what it might have been, I don't think is really all that important because the passage does not condone divorce, right? It's only talking about remarriage after a divorce, and it's governing that. And what's important to understand is this, because she's divorced for a reason besides adultery, and she marries another, she becomes what? What does it say? Defiled, that it'd be equally the same for a man. It's just written from a male gender. You might say, well, you know, he let her go, right? I mean, he gave her a certificate of divorce. It was okay. And she had the paper in her hand, right? But by releasing her, he allowed her to marry another, and in so doing, she became an adulteress. That's the issue. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5, 31 and 32. Verse 31, he says, It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Verse 32, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the cause of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So that's the issue, and it kind of firms it up in our mind. There's also a passage in Mark 10, 11 and 12, which parallels this passage, and we'll look at it in just a minute. And it's even more specific but the message is the same. It hasn't changed. The real point of Deuteronomy 24, Moses says, is this. If you divorce your wife for any uncleanness, which doesn't mean adultery because we've already determined what adultery is and what the punishment for that was. So it has to be something else. You cause her to commit adultery. And that's why even if her second husband dies, she can't go back to the first husband because he's caused her to commit adultery and become defiled and vice versa. And we see later the same thing applies to him. Mark 10, 11, whoever divorces his wife, here's this parallel passage, and marries another woman commits adultery against her. So the man is just as culpable as the woman is. So the Pharisees thought they didn't commit adultery. But Jesus said, you prol proliferate adultery all over the place. Because everyone connected to a divorce for a reason other than adultery commits adultery when they're remarried. God does not recognize the second union. See, that's the issue. If the first union was ended without a biblical reason, and what's that reason? Adultery. So Deuteronomy 24 doesn't allow or command divorce. What does it do? It forbids the remarriage of illegitimately divorced persons. That's what it does. So, Paul will deal with this issue directly, 1 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11, and that's why I'm talking about it, because many of the questions, as these brand new believers in this island in the middle of a sea of immorality, they're in this church, and they have got a lot of questions about their relationships. And we're going to look at, in a couple of weeks, the whole, all the different kinds of marriages that Roman law allowed. But only one really conformed to what we see from Malachi and what we understand from a biblical model. And so they come in with all this different type of baggage. And they're coming in with uh, a relationship with temple prostitutes. They're coming in a relationship with people, perhaps that, a woman who's not married to him, and plus a, a, a live-in marriage partner or whatever it may be. And so he's going to deal with all this stuff. And then you've got these questions coming up. Well, hey, I'm, I'm a believer. I'm married to an unbeliever. My life is miserable. Is it okay if I divorce this person and marry a believer? And you can understand as we look in, in 1 Corinthians 7, that's actually the question. Because you can just look from a believer's perspective. They've gotten you know, rid of all their sin and, and their life is connected to Christ. They want to walk with him. They want to do all this stuff. And they're connected to this person who's still going to the temple and doing all these things. Hey, wouldn't it be better if I just you know, divorced? And Paul says, no, if the unbeliever is willing to stay, you let them stay. And why? Because of the Lord's view on divorce. And why? Because the Lord's original command way back in the garden. How was it set up? This is how it was set up. And so Paul's going to talk about this stuff. This is very, very important. So Deuteronomy 24 doesn't allow or command divorce. All it does is 
Uh, it forbids the remarriage of Ill illegitimately divorced persons. And Paul's going to deal with that issue directly. And I remember, as I was thinking about this, this uh, message, I remember when we were living down in Homestead, I was reading the Miami Herald one weekend, a really small advertisement near the bottom of the page right around Thanksgiving time. It said this, dump the turkey, no-fault divorce, 100 bucks." And that's really, the, that's, the, that's the view of our culture today, isn't it? Just, you know, dump him. You don't like him. He, he doesn't fit, you know, your, your model of life anymore. I mean, he's a drag to you. Whatever it is, hey, 100 bucks, no-fault divorce, he's out the door. And so that, I mean, I don't think we've departed a whole lot from the same idea that Paul was dealing with in Corinth. So, let me tell you, God wanted to protect marriage, and he makes it clear that people can't divorce their spouse for any reason that they want, because we proliferate adultery and continue to live in adultery. So God's plan from the beginning one man created for one woman, so no other selections, no other options. A powerful link, so a cleaving, a joining together, a leaving and a cleaving, a one flesh, and then it's, marriage is his. It's his craftsmanship. He defined it. And so he made any other option end in catastrophe. So as the Pharisees referenced this passage, they were actually indulging themselves because uh, in what they had been doing and trying to uh, get a... Uh, try to have an escape for them because they were indicting really themselves because they were doing exactly what the passage said for them not to do. And Jesus doesn't let them off easily at all. And so now that we've looked at those passages in question, turn back with me now to Matthew 19, verse 8, if you would. Matthew 19, verse 8. <clears throat> he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. In other words, we can see this parallel now. There was no command, as we've seen, but because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted it. That's what Jesus says. He tolerated it. He put up with it. He endured it. He stomached it, whatever you, however you want to define that. Moses didn't give permission to it for indecency or uncleanness, did he? So no command, just observing what was already happening. Uh, he recognized what was going on, so he didn't give uh, permission for indecency. And because if you divorced for that, you became defiled. So he didn't give permission for it for anything less than that either. If it wasn't for the type of behavior that was similar to in ugliness as leaving your refuse uncovered in the middle of a camp, but relating to interpersonal actions like ugly behavior and lewdness or whatever it may be between the couple, if you didn't give permission for divorce for that, it certainly wouldn't be acceptable for any of the other reasons the Pharisees used to justify their actions, like burning the dinner or incompatibility or you found somebody prettier or because she talked to men in the street, she didn't keep a clean house, she argued with me, we don't get along, whatever it may be. You got no permission for that one either. Moses permitted divorce and the subsequent remarriage. Now, we don't know where Moses actually permitted it because the Lord doesn't give us that record, but we know that he did. Because Jesus said that Moses permitted it because of the hardness of your heart. So we just have to rely on Jesus' words. He says, uh, Moses gave you the permission. It was permitted for legitimate circumstances. Uh, for the simple reason that it was not permitted for illegitimate circumstances. Got it? So Moses gave you the permission, but not for illegitimate circumstances. Only for legitimate circumstances. But the Old Testament doesn't give us a specific text where it says, where Moses says, I permit you to get a divorce. And so we have to draw that out from Jesus' words, which he makes very clear to us. And so I think perhaps there's a reason for the fact that it's not overtly stated and there's not an actual scripture there in the passage, because I'm sure every attorney would have it on the wall in his office. And so it, it was permission, it was a release, but not blatantly stated, because people perhaps would rush to that passage just to justify their actions. And so Jesus says Moses gave the permission, but it was only for legitimate reasons, and that was 
adultery, but not for any other reason. So the point of the Old Testament is this, divorce for less than adultery leads to adultery. And that's really where we understand that in God's grace, there was this transition from death to divorce. He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. What was it from the beginning? Well, it was one man for one woman, no other options. It was his craftsmanship, so don't break it up. If you commit adultery, you're put to death. And that's the way it was from the, from the beginning. What Jesus says to Moses, Moses permitted it. So you have this transition then from death to divorce because of the hardness of your heart. Jesus said, Moses said, okay, you can get divorced, but not for, other, not for indecency or other, any of these other reasons. He permitted you to divorce because of the hardness of your heart. And what was that hardness? Well, you know, think about their time in the wilderness. If you think about uh, that time, it was full of adultery, full of idol worship, sinfulness, wickedness, immorality all over the place. And so Jesus said, you know, because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses permitted it to go from death to divorce. And from Deuteronomy, we know that the only reason he permitted it was for adultery, not for anything less than that. And really, the only reason it was allowed to happen was because God was a gracious God. And because he's a gracious God, he didn't exercise the death penalty. For example, here's the thing. Did, did David commit adultery? Yes, he did. And not just the one time that we talk about with Nathan, okay? Uh, David had multiple wives. David had concubines. David committed adultery. Did the Lord exercise the death penalty on David? No. He was gracious. How about Solomon? Did he commit adultery? Only heaven knows how many times. How about Abraham? Jacob? Did the Lord kill them? No. And the point of the discussion is this. It's an example of a gracious God extending that grace to the hard-hearted. God, in his forbearance, if you will, spared life and tolerated divorce. And he allowed Moses to tell them he would tolerate it for their hard heart. If, if marriage could only be severed by adultery because that adultery led to death, then in permitting divorce, which Jesus says that he did through Moses, marriage could still only be severed by adultery, and that would have to have been through divorce. And that's very important, beloved. And as you think about it, as you think about the examples in Scripture, it would only be where there is an unremorseful, unrepentant heart, where there was an irreconcilable situation in a marriage. There's a spouse in a marriage in an adulterous relationship, and they won't sever it. And there would be no way to transport it back, no way to restore it. God may be gracious to that unrepentant spouse, but where that unremorseful heart is repentant, where the hard-hearted continues, God's graciousness allowed divorce. And remember, the Bible always assumes remarriage. The injured partner is free to remarry. So when you have an unremorseful, unrepentant adulterer in marriage, you have a hard heart. When they're pursuing their adultery in a blatant, unrepentant manner, Jesus says, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, permitted you to divorce your wives. He didn't approve of it. He didn't extol it. He didn't command it. He allowed it. He permitted it in the case of adultery where the Lord was gracious and didn't bring the death penalty on them. And that's all we can understand about the passage and those that we've looked at that are connected to it because of grace to allow an opportunity for the offender, the adulterer, to seek repentance and forgiveness. He permitted them to be spared death. But in sparing, now mark this, but in sparing the guilty one, he would have been binding the innocent one to a life sentence with an unrepentant, callous, unremorseful, adulterous spouse. Get that? 
if he, permit, if, he, if he didn't allow a divorce, but allowed the adulterer to continue to live, then he would have just bound the innocent spouse to an adulterous, unrepentant, callous, unremorseful partner. So because of sin, and because God is gracious to the guilty one, and because God doesn't punish the good with the wicked, and to make life bearable to the one who's been offended by adultery, he offered divorce. And so he says to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. So let's sum that up. Why is divorce replace death? Well, God's grace, first of all. God's grace. Secondly, perhaps God was establishing his ideal early on. Death for adultery, death for idolatry, death for disrespecting parents, and a number of other things, perhaps very similar in the situation with Ananias and Sapphira in the early church uh, history, lying about what they would give, and during the days of the early church, Acts 5, and the Lord killed them, is really setting up the ideal, because I'm sure a lot of people have done the same thing throughout the church age, and the Lord didn't kill them. But he made that very clear at the beginning. This is what my ideal is. And thirdly, perhaps no one would carry out the sentence, or maybe there was no one who could carry out the sentence. So whatever it may be, uh, the Lord allowed uh, divorce to replace the death sentence. Now, remember John 8? woman caught in adultery. And they were going to stone her. What did Jesus say to all of them? That he is without, what? Sin cast the first stone. Perhaps that uh, it gives us a little example of what the situation has been all along. You're all hypocrites. How can you judge her? I mean, you're all doing the same thing, and so you're not going to be able to judge her. Now, look back, if you would, Matthew chapter 19, verse 8. And you're looking forward to the air conditioning in your car, as am I. Matthew 19, verse 8. Stick with me. We're just about done. Now look at verse 8. He says, And he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. Now look at verse 9, because it just flows right in. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced, commits adultery. So he just really clarifies exactly what we've said all along. See, it's not any different. Jesus gives them the Old Testament ideal, just restated. God never intended for divorce for any reason, but where there was adultery, God killed them. But because men were sinful and God was gracious, and perhaps no one would or even could carry out the punishment, God permitted divorce to sever the relationship between an unrepentant, calloused, unremorseful, hard-hearted adulterer. And the purpose for divorce was to show mercy to the guilty because if he hadn't allowed divorce, the guilty would be dead. I mean, that was really the issue. You committed adultery, you're dead. And, and the innocent one would then be free to remarry if that adulterer was dead. So where there's grounds for divorce, there's grounds for remarriage. You understand? That's a good connection. Because the Bible always assumes remarriage. And if he allows divorce for adultery, then he allows remarriage for the offended party. You see? Now look at verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife... Here it is, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. So when you get a divorce for a reason other than adultery, you multiply adultery in every direction, which is exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 5. That's exactly what he told the Pharisees they were doing. And that's not a new thought. It's not even a new understanding of an old thought. It's the same thing Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. It's the same thing that Paul will assume the Corinthian church understands. And so Jesus silences all the criticism of the Pharisees as he answers their two questions. And after he's done doing that, it prompted some interesting observations and a question from his disciples. Let's look at what they say, and then we're going to close up. Okay, look at uh, verse 10 of Matthew 19. I love this. This is just fantastic. And I wish um, we could have heard the whole conversation uh, here 
and we get the recorded what we have, but I would love to have been a fly on the wall here. The disciples said to him, verse 10, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. Verse 11, but he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. So the disciples say, hey, if this is how it is, you just need to stay away from marriage. I mean, that's way too narrow. I mean, that's going to be very hard. And he says, no, all, you know, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it's been given. Verse 12, for there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are also eunuchs who, were, who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Now, obviously, we're not going to get through all that because that second portion deals with singleness. And it's very important for us and for the Corinthian church as Paul's going to deal with it. So at this point, the Pharisees are no longer in the conversation. Perhaps because Jesus showed them to be a bunch of adulterers and they knew it and all the people knew it and they were embarrassed and they just kind of faded away from the conversation. Or perhaps, as Mark 10, 10 tells us, uh, Jesus and his disciples went into a house and perhaps it wasn't an uh, open invitation. It was just for Jesus and the disciples, perhaps to break bread together. And so they're no longer around and so they're going to question him more about marriage uh, and the Pharisees weren't invited. Now, whatever the situation, probably a combination of those two, the conversation continued. And as I said, I wish we could have heard the whole conversation. It would be nice to hear that in a recorded form. Everything that was said, everything that was said between them, uh, we get what the Lord has uh, given us. Uh, and, of course, I feel the same way about Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And every place the scripture talked about him uh, as coming. Uh, I would have loved to have heard that conversation, too. But the fact of the matter, this is what we have. And they ask him about this same matter. These guys are really caught up in his teaching. And they're also shocked by his response. And it isn't the first time that they've been shocked, nor will it be the last. Just a couple of verses later, Jesus is teaching them about what kind of attitude it takes to receive eternal life. And they're going to say, if such is the case, then who can be saved? Just like they said, if it's the case for marriage, then better not to marry. So he, he talks about being a disciple and he says, you know, uh, who can be saved? And many didn't walk anymore with him. They're shocked in their response. He tells them about his death and they're shocked and they respond saying, this can't be so. You can't be dying. And so he's telling them things and, they, and they're captured by his teaching, but shocked by his response because it's so far away from what they're used to hearing. And so when he taught them about their participation in his death and how his body was food, his blood was drink, and they're shocked, and they told him, you know, this message is too strong for us, we can't bear it. So this is not the first time they've had a shocked response to Jesus's comments on some certain topic. So here they are, very curious about what Jesus is going to say, because they lived all their lives, listen, in a culture where marriage was under attack, and it was redefined, and human relationships were all messed up, just like we have today, and just like you and I have lived today, in a culture where marriage is under attack, in a culture where it's all redefined and all that kind of stuff and all messed up, and they've lived in that all their life, and now Jesus is saying these very narrow things and calling them to look back to what God did because that was significant. It was the main thing, one man for one woman. And then he gave them all this perspective about how you could divorce and why you couldn't divorce and why Moses didn't say it was okay for any reason. And so Jesus comes along, he shows them God's plan from the beginning, and only mercifully concedes divorce in the case of hard-hearted immorality, giving us an example of his long-suffering, really, with Israel. We see that constantly as he bore along with them. And they look at this very narrow road, this very strict standard. So how do the disciples assimilate this truth? Listen to their response. Look at verse 10. The disciples said to him, if the relationship with a man and his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. So that's their evaluation. If that's how narrow it is, and you can't get out for any reason other than adultery, I mean, if, really, they're saying if you get into this marriage thing, you can't get out of it. It'd be better if you didn't get into it, right? 
So, you know, to be joined to a wife or a husband, and of course it's, it's male gender again, to, so a wife joined to a husband or a husband joined to a wife, whatever it may be, and only the spouse's adultery releases you from the marriage, being forced to tolerate everything else, all their vices, all their idiosyncrasies, all their irreconcilable differences and all that. You've got to tolerate all that all your life. You don't get a, you don't get a free pass uh, unless there's some adultery there and hard-hearted, unrepentant adultery. No matter what, you're stuck from now on. They're just saying, no way. It's better to be single, they say. Now mark this. They understood exactly what Jesus was saying with that comment. Now, I will say this. They weren't right, but they understood his point. They weren't right that it's better not to marry. It's not automatically better to be single. Now, Jesus is going to give some reasons for singleness, and they are significant and very important. But it's not automatically better to be single. And that's the same kind of thing that's going on in our culture today. Some people are single because they say, you know, I'm not going to get married because I'm not ready to make this long-time commitment. You know, I, I, I don't want to... I'm afraid of all of that kind of stuff, and I don't know that I could stay together all my, all my life, and so it's just better for me not to be married. And I would say that they haven't been given the gift of singleness, perhaps, because if they're constantly tempted to be married or to be involved intimately with someone, then that's not a gift of singleness. And so there's a whole problem there, and Jesus is going to talk about that. So, but this is very common in our culture. But in this instance, they go you know, from one romance to another, forfeit the best life has to offer, the grace of life, 1 Peter 3, 7. Uh, the richest part of life, which is la a lasting covenant with someone with love that lasts for life. And so there are other passages now that deal with the blessedness of marriage and, and show the disciples to be wrong. And that's what we're going to close with because very uh, heavy, uh, heavy uh, message content. And I want to just take just a second and look at some very marvelous passages that deal with the blessedness of marriage and show that the disciples' automatic uh, understanding that it's better not to marry isn't correct. Okay, And we're going to get back to Matthew chapter 19, the last couple of verses in singleness next time. But, of course, and we won't look at this because of time, but uh, Proverbs chapter 5, verse 15 and following, which we looked at at length two weeks ago, it just talks about the wonderful, exciting, captivating components of marriage and intimacy that come between a man and a wife. And it's an excellent thing, and God has given it, and he blesses it. Uh, we, we saw Proverbs 19, 14. We've looked at it numerous times. But uh, house and wealth are an inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. That, that uh, sticker is on my computer screen underneath a picture of my wife. That's a very important passage to me. Uh, house and wealth are inheritance from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. I got a gift from the Lord and a wife that's prudent. Proverbs 18, 22, he who finds a wife finds a good thing, obtains favor from the Lord. That's favor. Then you find a wife. Proverbs 12, 4, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. Proverbs 31, 10, an excellent wife who can find for her wealth is far above jewels. In other words, they're not all equally, crea <laughs> equally created. Some of them are excellent and wealth are far above jewels. And if you get one of those, you get an inheritance from the Lord. You've got favor from the Lord. You've got a crown. You have uh, something from the Lord that is a blessing to you. See, So it isn't automatically better to be single. There are circumstances where it is. If singleness has been given as a gift, then these things are not important because the Lord has given you singleness for a purpose. And Paul's going to talk about that in 1 Corinthians 7. And we're going to see it also in Jesus' teaching in Matthew 19. So... The disciples weren't right when they said it's better that people not marry because the Bible calls it a good thing, an excellent thing. Their attitude was just the common attitude that we still have today. If I have to stick with it, I have to stick with marriage for life, I'm not going to get married. And really, some of the reasons marriages uh, that actually people come together don't last is because people don't marry for the right reasons. Uh, they don't marry to make commitments, to covenant together, to give self-sacrificing love to each other, as we see in Jim 
and Dorothy's relationship. They get married to get something, see? Not to give self-sacrificing love all their life and give themselves away in ministry, but to get something. That's what our culture does. You know, namely, chasing after emotion and chasing after euphoria. And as long as the other partner can generate that feeling, that emotion, as long as the other partner can generate uh, and continue to give me what I need, you know, we're going to stay together. But as soon as you fail to do that, then and as soon as I, I fail to feel that feeling anymore, we must not be in love anymore. And we must be moving away from each other. And so we must need to get someone else. And someone else comes by and something happens in the brain and they're off and, and they go through the same process again. See, that's our culture. And there are as many things to fill in there as there are couples getting married. That cause the couples to go in opposite directions. And it all centers around me and how you make me feel and how you, what you do for me and all that. And that's Hollywood's model for us. And we see that constantly repeated over and over, almost every movie theme. And it has nothing to do with love and romance that God designed, which has to do with virtue and character and common standards and moral fiber and the common grace of life, the desiring to give your life away for something that's way above you and be that example of what it looks like in Christ in the church and be the example of what it looks like in Israel and, and the Jews. See, it's not that. It's something else. See, And so the disciples weren't used to this idea. And the world doesn't understand that when you pick, you better pick carefully realizing that it's one man for one woman, no other selections. And it's a powerful link. You leave and you cleave together. And there's one flesh, and it's his craftsmanship. God put his stamp on it. He designed it. He, he patterned it. And that's the type of union that you're supposed to have. And marriage, ta marriage takes a real beating in the form of cultural commentary. And in comedy, it takes a huge beating. And it's because one or both of the partners in the marriage have settled for a cheap substitute from what the Lord designed for the deep, rich, a profound experience that a man and a woman can have when they've covenanted together in a powerful link, in a rich friendship, remaining together as the years roll by. And you probably have examples like we have here at, at Berean of people who have stayed together that way. And Jim and Loma Leeds are an example for me in a church I pastored down in South Florida um, who got to get both, both blind, stayed together. They were, at the time we were, I was pastoring, they were in their 40-something year. And Listening to them talk about their marriage was just so enjoyable for me. And things that happened when they were early in the marriage, Loma told me one time uh, that her husband was at work and she was trying to make dinner for him because she's blind, she's working in the kitchen, and she had a big roast and she dropped it. And the house that they were in was a mobile home and it wasn't exactly level, and so it rolled away from her and she wasn't able to find it. And she, so she had to search around on her hands and knees till she found the roast and she just put it. <laughs> She just put it in the pan and cooked it anyway. I mean, what are you going to do? You can't see anything on it. And, and it, just those kinds of ideas, that they just were so sweet with each other and just so long-suffering together. And that's the kind of thing that it's supposed to look like. And they were committed to ministry and always involved in something in the church and always around encouraging people. That's, that's what I'm talking about. And that's the kind of relationship the Lord puts together. And what the world needs to know, what the disciples needed to know, is that that marriage is a lifelong commitment. And that isn't a reason to avoid it. That's a reason to get into it. And that's what we should look forward to because uh, it's the wonderful reality of, of a lifelong relationship. God's able to show the world a picture of something of his nature in forgiveness and selfless love and intimacy and, and you know, inside a lifelong marriage, he's able to bless you in ways he couldn't before as a single person. And the disciples were only right in one way. You don't want to get into a marriage with the wrong person. So when you're looking for that certain person, for those who are single today, be careful you aren't looking and adopting the world's criteria for that person. The picture from a billboard or the commercial or the movies or, or uh, make sure the values of our cultural icons in music and movies haven't displaced 
the values that the Lord wants you to have in your life as you look for that person. The one who loves us and wants to be glorified in our relationships and in the process bless us, see. The one who displays our maker's values for you with the ones our cultural, our cultural gives. So make sure you're looking for character and make sure you're looking for moral fiber and make sure the most important things that other person needs to possess include a love for the word of God and, and, a spiritual, and spiritual values and fruit of the spirit. And, and make sure they, and that means you can see them, beloved. Okay, that doesn't mean that somebody just says, well, I'm a believer and you just take it at face value. There's fruit there. And make sure they love God more than they love you. That God comes before you, and you're not willing to sacrifice that relationship, and they're not willing to sacrifice that relationship to God in order to please you. And, and that love of God will manifest fruit in their life, and, and like love and joy and peace and gentleness and goodness and meekness and patience and self-control. And make sure that that person submits to modesty, that they're committed to sexual purity, and, and the friends they associate with increase their spirituality. So you can really tell a lot about somebody depending on who their friends are. And their commitment to serve the Lord with their life is as deep and as strong as yours is. And yours should be thorough and throughout. And if you don't know all of that yet about the person, I would suggest that you slow down that relationship. Or can I say that you may end up spending the rest of your life in misery and heartache trying to hold a marriage together and doing it single-handedly. So don't look at marriage the way the disciples did. Marriage is a consecrated thing. It's the most wonderful gift that God can give next to salvation. When you have two people who love Jesus and love his word, and that word to them on how to interact with one another has become conviction for them. So it's not just they know what it is, they're able to act on it. And they commit their lives to his leading, allowing the Holy Spirit to have influence in their home. They'll love each other, and they'll stay together, and they'll enrich one another beyond any previous imagination. And if that's there, it's going to regularly be the topic of your conversation to the Lord at night when you lay your head down and you can pray uh, like David did, my soul is satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth offers praises with joyful lips. When I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches, for you've been my help, and in the shed of your wings I sing for joy. That kind of thing will be your prayer at night. It's the Lord has connected you with someone of like uh, thought, and the, the marriage is beginning to be molded into his image. That's the way God intended it. Now, we didn't get too far in the passage, I'm sorry, but we did cover some ground, I think, that would help you. It almost seems when we're on topics like this, when you, all you can cover is the bad, uh, the worst case scenarios and all that. Uh, we almost become cynical like the disciples were, but that's not what God intended. And we're going to pick up here next time. Remember this, ultimately, that God seeks to be glorified, ultimately. In your relationship with your wife, in your singleness, God seeks to be glorified in the process, though in being glorified, he seeks your good. To seek is to bless you, and you are able to receive that blessing in so much as you're obedient to his word. Remember Deuteronomy 5.21, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep all my commands that it might be well with them and with their children forever. That's really why Jesus always comes back to what God has to say with every question that was asked of him. And Matthew 19.3 is no different, see. He just comes back to what God had to say, because why? If you do what God said, it's always going to be for your blessing. If you do what God said, it's always going to be for your richness. It's always going to be for your joy and your fulfillment. All right? And let's bow and be dismissed in prayer, if you would. Father, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word. And we thank you for the little bit of discomfort in here that allows us to really work hard to focus. And Lord, I thank you for uh, the richness of our relationship to you. It comes through salvation. Thank you for the cross and Jesus' death and resurrection. I thank you for all who sit here who've, who've repented and come in faith and had their sins forgiven. You have, we have, 
now the Holy Spirit as a resident uh, comforter, a resident director, an encourager, a restrainer. And so, Father, as we look at these things that we see in your word, as we talk about relationships, human relationships, so basic uh, to the scriptures, so uh, thorough all throughout, uh, we recognize that we have the ability to live like this. We have the ability to conform uh, our thoughts, our minds to your own word in a, in a way that we never could before, to understand these concepts from the Lord, to uh, take what the world would deem foolishness, which is this such simple definitions of human relationships and what God did at the beginning, which the world would put away. It's just so much myth and ridiculousness. We can take that and understand. This is, this is your plan for humans. This is your plan for the richness of, of our life. This is your plan for the world. And where you say yes, it's yes for everybody. And where you say no, it's no for everybody, uh, for their good. And so, Father, I pray that you'll help us assimilate these things as we deal with loved ones, as we deal with friends who undoubtedly are caught in all kinds of different relationships, which are far from this model, we can be gentle. Uh, you can fill us with grace that we may know in meekness how to answer each one who's on the outside. Lord, we thank you for that opportunity and pray that you'll increase those things as we understand your word. Father, uh, I pray that you'll help us to be a church that really conforms this way as we uh, love our wives, love our husbands, and respect them and submit to them mutually, Lord, that we might be that example of what a proper relationship looks like, that we might not be part of the stumbling block that the world says, look, see, this is how it is. This is why we just throw that whole thing out. But instead, that we become that reprint of Christ inside a relationship that you've given us. And so, Father, I pray um, for our, our singles who, who aren't even considering marriage, for those who perhaps are anticipating marriage, uh, being submitted to purity, in a culture that's just saturated with sexuality, be the right person instead of looking for the right person. Committed to a spiritual love that uh, doesn't seek its own. Give us a desire to know your word. Help us to see where we're arguing with you, where we're turning away from what you've said and be committed to see how foolish that is and repent and revitalize our hearts and you know, that we might keep your commandments and have your blessing. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen.